You will find an account in Matthew chapter 1 of a very, very special person in the drama that happened that first night of which the choir and orchestra so beautifully sang and played. And the account begins in verse 18 of the first chapter of the first gospel. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her an example, a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. I title this message, Joseph, Man of Quiet Obedience. Joseph is a minor player in the drama of Christmas, but he is a major example of what obedience is really all about. <clears throat> There's a sense in which Joseph is the forgotten man of Christmas. He is the silent man of the Christmas story. Read the story carefully. There is not one word ever quoted that Joseph actually said. So as we read the story, we find a very quiet man who is not highly verbal, with which many of you men in this congregation could easily identify. Not one syllable is uttered by Joseph, the silent man, perhaps forgotten. He plays the role of an extra as if the story as we tell it could almost forget him. How many songs about Joseph have you ever heard in Christmas musicals? We sing about Mary all the time, but very little about Joseph. In the nativity scenes, he's the last one put up and the first one taken down. And when you go to a nativity scene, nobody looks for Joseph to see what he looked like. We look for the baby. We look for Mary. We look for the angels. And oh yeah, that's Joseph over there. Largely, he's the forgotten man in the entire Christmas story. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, What you do speak so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. <laughs> I think that uh, Joseph, what Joseph did, speaks so loudly it doesn't make any difference if he doesn't say anything when you think about it. 
because Joseph makes his impact upon the story of Christmas without saying a single word. He is the quiet man. He is from the line of David. He is uh, a young man who grew up in Bethlehem. Somewhere, depending on just where you mark the original uh, markings, somewhere four to five, six miles southwest of Jerusalem. And there in Bethlehem, that was his town of birth. He couldn't find much work as he grew up, or perhaps his father was a carpenter also. So they moved north to the hill country of Galilee, and Nazareth became his major town of work and living. And, of course, without knowing it, he was fulfilling the prophet's role that out of Galilee there would be a connection for the Messiah. Uh, he was a carpenter. Joseph was not a poet. He wasn't waxing eloquent with words. We can tell that because nobody ever quoted him. He evidently didn't say much that was worth repeating. He was not a prophet. He was not necessarily known as a highly spiritual man. And yet what he did speaks loudly, more loudly than what some prophets have done. He liked to handle things. I think he liked to be creative. He liked to speak with his hands, being a carpenter. It, tradition says that he made the smoothest oxen yoke of anybody in Nazareth. And so he stayed in business and had lots to do. He met Mary up in Nazareth <clears throat> when she was probably 13 or 14, and uh, he was 19 or 20. Joseph likely thought her to be a wonderful combination of girl and woman. He obviously loved her, and as I'll show you later, he obviously had a lot of confidence in her faithfulness because he trusted her word about the angel and the fact that no man had known her, she had not been in physical union with any man. In, in betrothal, in uh, Palestinian Judaism of Jesus' day, there were two basic steps to getting married. Step one was to go to the girl's home and negotiate a deal with her parents. You would have to give a dowry of some sort. You don't take a wife away from a home without paying something. Uh, most of us know that. We pay, if not to her parents, we pay the rest of our lives. And uh, so does she, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, there's almost a mutual dowry anymore. And step one was to make a proposal, negotiate a dowry, and get the permission of the parents. And then there would be maybe a year or a year and a half in which the couple were betrothed and they would see each other often and they would date. There was to be no physical contact, sexual contact that is. But uh, step two would be after a year or a year and a half, the young man would uh, notify the parents that he was ready to consummate the marriage. He would walk down to the house and arrange a feast. He would uh, move with the wedding party to the feast and then move his wife usually to his parents' home. I don't know that there were, were many specialty mother-in-law counseling clinics, but there might have been by the way they, that most of them live because most new brides went immediately to live with the husband's family, including 
the husband's mother and the husband's father. And in many places in the Middle East, that is still the custom today. Uh, we thank God for our mother-in-laws, don't we, men? There was a resounding sound. Please note that on the tape. We thank God for our mother-in-laws. Amen? Amen? Well, some of you better go to work on that, I think. If you haven't sent your mother-in-law a Christmas card, I would advise that you do it right away. I wish I could. So they were betrothed, and uh, that was the way the wedding came about. Uh, we see Joseph in quiet obedience to the Lord in several ways that I want to mention to you as we recall the story. The first thing I would say is that Joseph responded with immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. The angel speaks and with clear, simple, unambiguous action, Joseph obeyed. There is no record of argument. There is no record of anger. There is no record of a fit. In simple, clear action, he obeyed the word from the Lord. That must have been refreshing to Gabriel, if you think about it. Gabriel came to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and he said, how can this be? I'm old and my wife is even older than I am. And uh, argued with Gabriel. And Gabriel came to Mary and announced that she was going to have a baby. And Mary said, how can this be, seeing I know not a man? But when Gabriel came to Joseph, Joseph didn't argue. He didn't query. He didn't respond angrily. He simply, with clear, simple action, the scripture says, verse 24, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. I suspect Gabriel was beginning to wonder, does anybody down here on earth obey anything God says? But finally, here's one who does. I mean, that's not unusual in the history of God's dealings with men. God came to Moses and Moses argued, oh no, I, I don't want the call, he said, uh, I'm not eloquent. God came to Gideon and Gideon said, oh no, I don't want the call, I'm a, just a simple farmer on the threshing floor here. And God came to Isaiah and Isaiah said, oh no, I don't want the call, I'm a sinful man. And God came to Jeremiah and Jeremiah said, oh no, I don't want the call, I'm too young. God came to Amos and Amos said, oh no, I don't want the call. He said, I'm not qualified. I'm just a farmer from Tekoa. But when God came to Joseph, Joseph awoke from the sleep and did precisely as the Lord commanded. I honor this man for his immediate obedience. I wish that you and I could practice obedience that way. When we get a clear word from the Lord, we don't need to stand and argue. We don't need to ask for 25 signs. I like to tell people, go ahead and obey what God has told you to do. And people say, but maybe I'm misinterpreting. Wait a minute. God can shut you down as fast as he can stimulate you. And if it's not God's will, he'll tell you no and turn you around. When God speaks, we learn from Joseph that we must obey. And immediate obedience is urgently needed in the body of Christ today. We need to learn how to respond when God calls. That's the point of experiencing God, learning how to be responsive when God speaks. I think that uh, there were many more gifted than Joseph, but God called Joseph. There were many with more money than Joseph, but God called Joseph. 
there were many perhaps with uh, greater uh, intellectual ability, but God called Joseph. Wonder what would have happened to Christ if he'd been sent into a wealthy home or if he'd been sent into the home of a PhD, if he'd been sent into the home of a, of a very gifted, talented, artistic person, a little unlike Joseph, who was talented, but in his own way. God doesn't want our excuses. Before God wants our money, he wants us. Before God wants our gift, he wants us. We must learn from Joseph, the quiet man of obedience, to practice immediate obedience. There's a second thing I would like to learn from Joseph today. He practiced painful obedience. It was painful. It's often inconvenient to obey God. God has asked me to do many things which were not convenient for me to do. And sometimes we like to manage God. Have you ever tried to manage God? Have you ever tried to stave off and delay obeying God? Yes, Lord, but not now. I'll do it in my time. I'll do it in my way. It was inconvenient. It's pretty inconvenient to marry a woman who's already pregnant and take her as your wife, especially when you know you've had nothing to do with the pregnancy. That requires something. It was painful for him. Now remember, there were two steps to betrothal. So they were in the middle of this period between step one and step two. I think Joseph had this dream and he pondered the dream. He was a pretty thoughtful man, as a matter of fact. In verse 19, before the dream, he was minded to put her away. In verse 20, he thought about these things. He, uh, in verse 24, however, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Early church fathers were divided over what Joseph's idea about Mary was. Some said that he was hurt deeply and felt rejection and did not trust her. Mary had been unfaithful. Chrysostom believed that. Ambrose, Augustine, Justin the Martyr, all said that Mary probably, uh, in Joseph's mind, had been faith, unfaithful to him. But Jerome, the translator of our Latin Bible, had a phrase which puts it very well, I think. He said, Mary's holiness hid in silence a mystery she did not understand. Isn't that interesting? Listen to that statement. Mary's holiness hid in silence a mystery she did not understand. And Jerome thought that Joseph fully trusted Mary. And she was such a devout and pious girl. He knew that her story had to be true. So um, Matthew reminds us that he is a just man. He is a fair man and says that he obeyed, took for the word of God the message of the dream from Gabriel. Now, Hebrew law demanded that when a betrothed woman had been unfaithful to her husband before the marriage was consummated, that the husband could put her away. Now, Joseph had really two choices. I want you to watch this carefully. His two choices with Mary, his betrothed virgin who now is with child, choice number one was to practice Numbers chapter 5. Do you remember Numbers chapter 5? 
In Numbers chapter 5, there was a test for a woman who was pregnant before she was married, and uh, that uh, uh, regarded unfaithfulness, and the test were the waters of bitterness. If she were suspected of being unfaithful and uh, lying with a man, then the, uh, there was a, a uh, sacrifice that was to be made. But she was also to drink bitter water. And uh, in drinking the bitter water, verse 22, may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. And the woman would say, Amen, so be it. And the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water and make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, wave the offering before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. And in verse 27, when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free. There's no swelling belly and no rotting thigh. And she is free to go ahead and bear the child. That was step one. Joseph could have made her go through that. It would have been humiliating, wouldn't it? Imagine hauling Mary before the priest in order to drink the bitter water to see whether she had defiled herself or whether she was telling the truth. But he had a second choice. And his second choice with her was either to put her away publicly or to put her away privately. And that's why you read that in verse 19. Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. So there were two choices in the second option. He could take two witnesses and go down to the elders sitting at the gate of the, of the town and declare that she was pregnant and he did not want to marry her because of unfaithfulness, that would be to put her away publicly. Or he could take two witnesses to her home and tell her parents that the contract had been violated and thus was terminated and he was not going to marry Mary and that way he would put her away privately. Now before the dream, Joseph had made up his mind to put her away, not publicly, to, share her the shame, to spare her the shame, but to put her away privately. And then the dream came. I, I, I'm, I respect Joseph because he didn't try to hurt her and do it and hide behind the will of God. He could have done it. He practiced grace, however. Don't you respect him for that? He could have publicly shamed her and privately shamed her and then said, but that's the will of God. And that is what the Bible teaches, and therefore I have a right to do that. Did you know that grace sometimes forgoes its right in order to practice love? In fact, it most often does that. Joseph, the man of quiet obedience, it cost him something. Joseph, as a carpenter, depended upon the goodwill of the people. There weren't billboards on those days for huge buses to whirl by and see a sign. You need something wooden made? Call Joseph, 1-800-MAKE-WOOD uh, or whatever. He had to depend upon people telling by word of mouth that he was a carpenter worthy. And if his name was smeared 
because he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant before he was married, Joseph could have paid a price. It always costs us to surrender in obedience to God. It will cost you to surrender to the ministry. It will cost you to surrender to teach Sunday school. It will cost you to surrender to sing in the choir. It will cost you. Obedience must be immediate, Joseph taught us. Joseph, the quiet man of obedience, also taught us painful obedience. The third kind of obedience we see in Joseph is courageous obedience. Courageous. Look in verse 20. While he thought about these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Sometimes it takes courage to obey. Was Joseph afraid to obey? Was he afraid of the consequences? Well, what might it have been he would be fearful of? Well, I tried to put myself in Joseph's position. And here's what I thought, Larry. If it had been my fiancé to whom I was betrothed, I, the first thing I would fear is betrayal. She said she loved me and she would marry me. And now she has been with another man. Joseph had to overcome the fear of betrayal. A second thing is the fear of rejection. Joseph had to overcome the fear of rejection. She says she wants me, but she really wants another man. Rejection is a terrible thing to face. Men are particularly vulnerable to rejection because we're so macho and our egos are always stuck up on a pole somewhere waiting for somebody to take a pot shot at us. But he had to face that. I think he had the fear of the future. What does this mean? What will it be like? What will this child be like? She says she hasn't been with another man. Certainly he must have feared the future. He might have been afraid of what else God would ask. Have you thought about that? <laughs> Lord, if you're going to, if you're going to want me to marry, go ahead and marry her when she has a baby that's not mine, what else would you ask of me? <laughs> what else would you ask of me? You know, some people are afraid to come to Christ because they're afraid of what God might ask them. They're afraid of what the Lord will demand of them. You don't have to do one single thing to be saved or one single thing to stay saved. But put your life in Christ's hands and trust his blood on the cross for salvation. The future is in God's hands and God is perfectly capable of holding you. But the angel said, fear not. He didn't say, don't be angry. He didn't say, don't be indecisive. He said, don't be fearful. I think he understood what Joseph was going through. And in response to that, Joseph practiced courageous obedience. It takes courage to obey God. Most of the times when God has broken into my life and God has called me to do something special, uh, I, I've, I've, my first reaction is to back away. Wait a minute. If I get too close, if God gets too close to me, what else is he going to want? What else will he demand? What else must I give up? And perhaps there was just for a moment that backing away. Don't get too close. What do you do when God gets close to you? Some of you run. You're afraid you have to deal with sin. Some of you hide. You're afraid you'll have to admit the truth about yourself. Some of you cling to others and become insecure because you're afraid that the God who cannot be seen is not worthy of trust as one who can be seen. Joseph 
the quiet man of obedience taught us courageous obedience. There's another sort of obedience that I find in him. I call it risky obedience. Joseph staked everything, absolutely everything, on the Word of God. Everything. He gambled the rest of his life on the truth of the Word of God. Now, there's a sense in which all of us do that. None of us can be saved unless we take a step of faith that casts ourselves wholly and completely upon God. Amen? In fact, I like to tell people I'm witnessing to, I have no backup plan. If God's Word is not true, I don't have a plan B, Brother Don. It's plan A and only plan A. That's all I've got. And if God is not true, then I'm as well off as the rest of the world. But I've staked everything, Tim, on the fact that God is. And God has spoken. And God spoke to Joseph. And there was a risk involved. He staked everything. The first problem that he had, he had to understand the dream. Now, did I eat some bad goat last night? Or why am I having a dream? Oh, I had a piece of pizza just a little bit later than I should have had it not long ago. And I stayed up and I dreamed the craziest dream you will not believe. I'm not even going to tell you the craziest dream I had. Men have speculated on what dreams mean for a long time. I read one psychologist who said dreams are your secret desires. I pray that's not true. <laughs> I read another man who said dreams reveal your fears. Uh, I read another man who said dreams uh, are, uh, uh, are always from the devil. The devil loves to do battle in the dream world. Well, oftentimes in the Old Testament dispensation, before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the key language of God was the language of dreams. God spoke to Daniel, how, class? In a dream. God spoke to the prophets, often in dreams. God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. And God speaks in dreams. That, I understand that. And he spoke to Joseph. Joseph first had to understand, what does this mean? But then he had to apply it. He had to apply it. Some rabbis taught in Joseph's day that you should disregard all dreams. And others taught that it was a prophecy, but a weak prophecy from God. It took a risk. We take a risk at salvation when we bank on God's promises. We take a risk when there's a call to do something. We take a risk when God demands that we obey to our own hurt. Have you ever had to pay something that you didn't feel you owe, but you felt it was the right course of action, and so you had to pay it and to your own hurt? But you did what was right, even when it cost you. Sometimes God's call to obey will mean risk losing a friend or losing face before somebody. I've had people back away from the command to go offer forgiveness to somebody who's wronged them. When they say, but what will the people think of me? And my answer usually is, hang what people will think of you. You obey God. Do what God says. Whatever is the risk. You cannot go wrong obeying God. Sooner or later, God will work it all out. There is sometimes a risk when we have to obey God that we'll lose control. And there are control freaks among us. We don't like to give up control. We like to have everything where it's manageable. And when you obey God, sometimes you just yield control totally over to Him. 
and it's out of your hands and in God's hands. By the way, I found that that's when life is most exciting, when it's out of my hands and in God's hands. And for Joseph, he took that step of risky obedience. Joseph, the man of quiet obedience who taught us how to practice risky obedience. There is another one that I like to think of and Joseph has taught me, and that is serious obedience. I think I call this serious obedience because obedience always has consequences. Joseph took the consequences of obedience. He did not try to get rid of them. He didn't try to excuse them. Obeying God's word brings serious consequences and is therefore serious obedience. I'm not walking around much this morning. I'm standing kind of still. I can turn a little bit to the choir once in a while. But I pulled a muscle in my hip and it messed up my sciatica and I feel like somebody's got a blowtorch sitting on my right hind leg. Well, I only got, I mean, my right leg. <laughs> on the back of my right leg. <laughs> so I'm not moving around very much and this is preaching a serious business to me this morning. This is a, a left-footed preacher you got today, and I'm keeping as much weight off the right one as I can. This is serious obedience. He obeyed God and never touched Mary. The scripture states it clearly. He took to him his wife and did not know her. Now, I don't know about you, but at 20 years old, the hormones are moving high, far, and fast. And that took some mighty self-discipline to practice the serious obedience that Joseph practiced. If you boys don't understand that, go home and ask your dad what that means after dinner today. <laughs> he avoided going back to Nazareth because during all of this serious obedience, three very special men had come from the east and made gifts to the child who had been born there in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem he stayed, I think, after the birth. Perhaps he didn't want to go back to Nazareth right away because he was afraid that people would make fun of him or they would gossip about Mary. And it might have been that he didn't go back to Nazareth so that she could uh, be protected. And Joseph, who was also her husband, became her protector. I like Joseph for that. So he left his tools in Nazareth. I'm not sure how he kept himself up while he was in Bethlehem. But during that time, here came three kings bearing great gifts. Herod, a boy in Memphis last year, said... Uh, he was in a Christmas play and he called him Harold the Grape. <laughs> Harold the Grape. Herod the Great, in contrast to Herod the Lesser, Harold the Grape <laughs> ordered that everybody should be killed under two years of age. And so he had to run to Egypt in order to protect Mary and the little child. Now, wait a minute. Remember this. In Egypt, there's no family. There is no support system. There are no friends. He has no means of support. I think he sold the gold frankincense, frankincense and myrrh that the, the kings brought to him. Did you ever wonder what, what they, they did with that? I'll tell you what they did with that. They sold it while they were down there in Egypt hiding so they could have a living. That's what they did with it. They sold the gold. 
Now, if you put this in 20th century language, try to understand Joseph. Think of it something like this. There's a young teenage boy, 19 years of age, living in a tenement house. His girlfriend tells him that she is pregnant. He knows he's not responsible. He has a little apartment, and in his apartment where he's living with his family, he has a dream. And God tells him to go ahead and marry her. Then he gets a letter from the government telling him he needs to go back to his hometown. So he leaves Charlotte, and he goes down to Opelika, Alabama. Down in Opelika, Alabama, that's his hometown, uh, he uh, registers and pays his taxes. And uh, when he gets there, every hotel in the town is full. There's not a single motel with a room. But a friend of his grandfather's has an old garage that he told him he could stay in. So he takes his young 15-year-old girlfriend to that garage, and they sleep in it overnight. They found an old mechanic's cover that they could put over themselves to keep them warm. And while they're there, the baby is born. The closest this kid ever got to a birth was in health class in ninth grade when he saw a slide of it. But he cuts the cord and takes care of the baby. They're laying in the garage in Opelika. And along come a bunch of bums, street people, drug addicts. And they start singing outside the garage. And uh, next day, three ambassadors drive up in a Cadillac limousine from the UN and bring him gifts down in Opelika, Alabama. He, he gets away with a bag full of Krugerrands. And then the governor of Alabama orders that all the boys under two years of age in that county, Opelika County, are going to be murdered. And he sends out the National Guard to search and kill them. So the kid takes off with his baby and his wife and goes to Mexico. And he gets down there and he finds a good market for Krugerrands and he sells his South African Krugerrands to sustain himself. And he stays down there in Mexico a couple of years, then comes on back, goes through Opelika, finds out that all the babies two years old that year were killed, and he comes on back to Charlotte and raises his son. Now you tell me, if that were you, could you keep your sanity through all that? By that time you'd be wondering, Lord, if this is the way you treat people that love you, I'd hate to see what you do to your enemies. But that was Joseph. That was Joseph. Joseph, the man of quiet obedience, taught us serious obedience. Take the consequences and follow God, and God will take care of you. There's one last lesson on obedience that Joseph teaches. I call it exemplary obedience. He has a great influence. I think Joseph does. When you think about it, suppose I could tell you that you are going to father the man who will change more people in the world and the course of human destiny more than any man who's ever lived. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be proud? Listen, I get proud when my kid is on the winning team on a basketball game. I get proud when my boy is on the winning team of a soccer, in, in a soccer game, soccer match. Imagine if you could be the father of a man who would influence the world more than anyone else. I think as the adoptive father, the earthly father of Jesus, Joseph taught us much. He taught us much. In fact, every time I read in the book of John or in any of the gospels where Jesus calls God Father, the first one to call God Abba, Papa, my mind goes back to his relationship to Joseph. And if he had not had a good relationship with his father, it would have been tough for him to call God Papa. 
He didn't call our heavenly emperor. He didn't address God, our heavenly captain. He didn't address God, our heavenly uh, brother. He addressed him, my heavenly father. My heavenly father. Martin Luther said his relationship with his father was so bad that after he surrendered his life and took the principle of justification by faith at God's word, he could not even say the word God the Father for two years. His relationship with his father was so bad. They tell us that the father-child relationship is the most distant relationship in America today. And yet Jesus called God Father. Now where did he get that concept I think he got it from watching the guiding hand of Joseph, the virtue of a Joseph, the calm control of a Joseph, the love of a Joseph, the kindness of a Joseph. Where, where Jesus learned virtue was at Joseph's uh, feet. Where Jesus learned submission was at Joseph's feet. The quiet man of obedience taught the Son of God submission so that when he came to the cross, he was prepared to say, not my will but thine be done. Where did he learn that? He learned that at the feet of Joseph, his daddy. Uh, we, we don't hear much about Joseph after the 12-year experience in the temple. Joseph evidently died somewhere down the line, and we don't have a lot of history that tells us when or where or how. But we know that Jesus was heavily influenced by this man, Joseph. And every time I read where Jesus said, I have finished the work that the Father sent me to do, I can see Jesus standing in his daddy's carpenter shop. And he'd finished polishing off with a bone that oxen's yoke, and he'd gotten it done. And it was all done. And his father, Joseph, told him, Son, you've done well. Well done. That's a good job. Imagine Joseph the man of quiet obedience teaching all of us the power, the influence, the example of a godly father. And he touched the lives of the whole world by being obedient. And without obedience, you can never be what God wants you to be. And without full and unquestioned immediate obedience, you will never accomplish what God has called for you to accomplish. You'll never do it. Joseph was a man of quiet obedience. Unless you surrender to Christ and confess that you cannot save yourself and rest wholly in him for salvation and eternal life, you cannot be saved. It takes absolute submission to the cross and to the person of the Lord Jesus and the death of the Lord Jesus which requires an admission of our sin. Joseph, the man of quiet obedience, taught us how to surrender. And he taught Jesus how to surrender. And I want to ask you this morning as you ponder the life of Joseph all over anew, I would ask you, is there something that God has called you to do that you've not yet responded to? Is there something that God has asked of you that you've not yet given to him? Is there somebody here who's privately received Christ and God said, I want you to make this a public commitment and don't be ashamed 
and you've not yet responded, I called you this morning. On this Christmas morning, on this glad Christmas Lord's Day, to think of Joseph, the man of quiet obedience. Mm -hmm. 